Hey, how you doing? Okay. Is everyone, are we back in the swing of things officially or is it still sort of technically summer? Don't, it, they cheat because it's messed up. Like there's the school year comes back now uh, early, but then you still have that first week of September that you take off. So it's like a false start. You think it's, 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 it just throws, it throws everything off. For us, we're in the last week of our apologetics month and uh, we'll, say, we'll say we save the best for last. Frank Turek, wherever, he's gone, he disappeared. Oh, there he is. Um, he's like, nah. Okay. So uh, just a couple things. Dr. Turek has actually gone through the circuit. We hosted a debate in San Jose. Some of you probably attended. I assume that Friday night. Awesome. Looks like all of you, the whole entire front row did, which is great. And then you spoke also last night, Saturday, and now you're speaking, you're doing the South Valley gauntlet, the three service back and forth here. So the dude's been going nonstop. So if you just manage it to make it at the end of second service, that's a, that's a home run. I can speak a lot about Dr. Turek, author's books. The books will be outside, runs as the president of Cross-Examined, but just has a real commitment, and this is the heart of it, a commitment to see uh, people repent and follow Jesus. Speaking truth not just to be right or to prove people wrong or to look like you're smart in a debate, but at the end of the day, truth matters because people matters. Uh, and Dr. Turk is spending his life making sure truth matters and speaking truth because people matter. So we are very honored and p pleased to have you here today. Thank you, Dr. Frank Turek. Thanks, Isaac. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How many were at the, the debate the other night or were somewhere else at the time? All right, good, good, just checking. How many are here right now? Well, good, we're gonna start off with a guy by the name of Jesus. Have you heard of this guy? Yeah, he actually said that you shall know the truth and the truth will... You know what, it, if the truth will set you free, you know what that implies? It implies that if you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. If the truth will set you free, if you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. That's what Jesus said. Well, David Silverman, the former president of the American Atheists, actually said that reason is inherently atheistic. He said God is a myth and reason is inherently atheistic. So he's saying it's true there is no God. Jesus says, I am the truth, I am God. Who do you think is right here? Well, actually, what I'd like to talk about this morning is that atheists claim to be beacons of reason, and they claim that science is on their side, and I actually think that atheists have to steal reason, and they have to steal aspects of reality in order to do science that would only exist if God existed. In fact, I think atheists are committing intellectual crimes. They try and say that causality, reason, information, morality, evil, and science all point toward atheism, when in fact, I think none of these things would exist unless God existed. In fact, I think atheists are stealing from God to argue against him. And that's the topic I'd like to cover today. In fact, our most recent book is called Stealing from God. And Christians, this book is not about tithing, okay? The book, Stealing from God, the subtitle is Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed when atheists are arguing there is no God, they're actually stealing aspects of reality from God in order to say God doesn't exist. 
And I can't obviously cover all of this here this morning. Well, actually, I probably could because I'm originally from New Jersey, all right? So I speak at 150 words a minute with Gus to 350, okay? So I probably could cover the whole book in the 43 minutes I have, but I won't try. I'm just going to try and talk a little bit about this concept of reason and then spend a little bit of time on the concept of science because atheists are always saying they're the reasonable ones and science is on their side. I think it's exactly the opposite. In fact, I think what we're going to talk about in the next five minutes is the most important thinking skill I've ever learned. And I think it's the most important thinking skill any of us can learn. If we want to know the truth, and it's important to know the truth because the truth can set you free, and if you want to avoid error. And probably uh, an easy way to illustrate this is to go back to an event I held at the University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison a number of years ago. Now, the University of Wisconsin at Madison is about in love with the Bible as much as, as, much as UCAL Berserkly is. Okay, I mean, they are not interested in the Bible. They think it's full of myths and fables. They're not interested in Christianity. And so we held this event, which we do at a lot of college campuses. We call it, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist based on a, a, one of our books. And uh, this was the Q&A line at uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And one man uh, got up to the Q&A mic uh, after I'd given the presentation. And I had just given uh, a presentation about how uh, the uh, universe had a beginning and how space, matter, and time had a beginning. So it seems that the cause of space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, and that points to God. A spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent being is what we mean by God. And this man was at the front of the line and he had this t-shirt on. So I knew he was open-minded. <laughs> and when he got up to the microphone, he said, you just said that space, matter, and time had a beginning, and, and God, therefore, is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Can you name anything else that's spaceless, timeless, and immaterial? And I said, yes, the laws of logic. And he said, well, I would argue then that the laws of logic don't actually exist. And I said, so you're saying they do exist? And he said, no, I'm saying they don't exist. I said, no, you're saying they do exist. He says, I'm saying they don't exist. I said, no, you're saying they do exist. He said, how am I saying they do exist? I said, because you're using them right now to contradict what I'm saying. <laughs> you see, you can't think a thought without the laws of logic. The laws of logic are to thinking what your eyes are to seeing. You can't see without eyes, and you can't think without the laws of logic. And these things are spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And so he went on to say that, well, I think the laws of logic are just human conventions. In fact, Michael Shermer said this the other night at the debate. So I asked this guy, I asked the same question to Shermer, Shermer the other night. I said, you're saying that we invent the laws of logic in our minds, that they don't really exist outside of us. And he said, yeah, that's right. I said, so let me ask you a question then. I said, before there were any human minds on the earth, was the statement there are no human minds on the earth true? He didn't like that. <laughs> he tried to get out of it, and he finally admitted, no, it would be true. Of course it would be true. 
because the laws of logic are not grounded in our minds. The laws of logic are grounded in the great mind, the mind of God. In fact, you and I couldn't even communicate if we had our own private idea of the laws of logic. If you had your laws of logic and I had my laws of logic, how could we ever communicate? We'd be locked in our own skulls. So these laws of logic, we don't create, we don't invent, we use. They are a bridge between minds. But we didn't create them, we didn't invent them. They're just there, grounded in the nature of God. So what I just did there with that gentleman at Madison was to point out that he was uttering a self-defeating statement. And this is the most important thinking skill that you can learn, that anyone can learn. In fact, I didn't even know this thinking skill until I was 33 years old. I already had a master's degree and I didn't know this. And it's so simple. And probably the easier way to show you this thinking skill is to uh, point out a very common phrase or common assertion in our culture today. And that is people will say things like this, there is no truth. Now, if someone would ever say this to you, you should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Yes, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Okay. This is known as logically a self-defeating statement. It's like saying, I can't speak a word in English. If someone were to say to you, I can't speak a word in English, what would you say to them? You just did. Now, what we're doing here, and this is the thinking skill, what you need to do when you're talking to somebody who say things like this, when they say things like this, what you want to do is you want to turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. See if the statement meets its own standard. Because if somebody says there's no truth, they're actually uttering a truth claim. And the point I want to bring up here is, can everyone see that this statement shoots itself? Can everyone see that? This is self-defeating, and this is the thinking skill. Let's do. Let's just do a few more of these just to, to get uh, uh, a very, very comfortable with it. Suppose someone makes the postmodern claim that there is no such thing as absolute truth. What would you say to somebody who says that? Yeah, yeah, turn the claim on itself and say something like, are you absolutely sure? Because you see, that's an absolute truth claim right there. It defeats itself. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Uh, this one is my favorite one. Uh, it's true for you, but not for me. Somebody says it's true for you, but not for me. What should you say to them? Turn the claim on itself. This is, this is also self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. I believe it's true for you. You can say that, but... If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, hey, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true, because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because this is self-defeating as well. In fact... It is a claim that claims to be true for everybody, yet the claim actually is supposed to not be true for everybody. So it's a self-defeating statement. Everyone, actually, there's an easier way of, of proving this. If somebody says, uh, it's true for you but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks at your account and says, uh, I'm sorry, you only have $6.14 in your account. It's very easy to get the money. You simply say, ha, 
That's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? No. Because if it's true, there's only $6.14 in your account. That's true for all people at all times, in all places, when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. Or let's say you're going a little fast down Highway 152 out here. You're going 90. California patrolman pulls you over and says, you were going 90. Never fear. Simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. And you speed away. <laughs> Can't give you a ticket if it's not true. No, if you were really going 90, that's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to you at that time. That's just true. Now, when you think about other things like gravity, I mean, is, is that just true for you but not for me? That's no, true for everybody, right? In fact, sometimes um, when you think about the Bible or Christianity, I'll ask people, do you believe Christianity is true or do you believe the Bible is true? And people will say, well, of course I do. And then I'll ask them, well, why do you think it's true? You know what answer I get more than any other, unfortunately, is because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not Christianity is true? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? The people who don't believe in gravity float away. Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. There's belief that and there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible's true. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. You have to go from belief that to belief in, to trust in. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? James, very good, very good. He said, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Why? Because they don't trust in him. They don't want to trust in him. They want to do their own thing. They, they know intellectually better than we do that God exists, but they don't trust in him. I mean, we know this in relationships, right? There's a difference between belief that and belief in. You can believe that somebody would be a good spouse, but that, that's not going to make somebody your spouse. In fact, when I first met my wife 33 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a, I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. And if you don't want to believe in God, in Jesus, you don't have to. God won't force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. How about this? You're going to hear this. In fact, this was Michael Shermer's position the other night. You should doubt everything. Skepticism, right? What would you say to somebody who says you should doubt everything? Yeah, should I doubt that? Why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? In fact, it turned out the other night that Shermer wasn't skeptical of evolution or atheism or quantum vacuums or any of the things he tries to come up with to, to come up with to explain why we're here and how we got here. He thinks those things are true. In fact, he who says he's a skeptic in one set of beliefs is a true believer in another set of beliefs. Everybody has some sort of explanation for why we're here. And even those who say they don't, they think 
It's true that there's not enough evidence to come up with a solution or to come up with a theory. That's still a positive position. Now, how many people in here, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not, but how many people in here sometimes doubt that what you believe is true? Hey, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're probably not thinking, right? Of course. All of us doubt on occasion. In fact, quite a bit. Sometimes I wonder, I wake up in the morning, I don't even know if this stuff is true. Do you ever do that? Like, gee, is this really true? But I realize that most of my doubts are not intellectual, they're emotional. Because when I look at the evidence for Christianity, the evidence for Christianity is very good. What's changing is me. Some days, everything's fine. Yeah, this is good. Other days, I don't know. Everything's fine today. Next day, I don't know. What's changing, me or the evidence? Evidence isn't changing. I'm changing. I'm going up and down. And when I look at the evidence, I realize that I ought to start doubting my doubts. Because the evidence is very good that Christianity is true. My emotional state doesn't change the fact at all. In fact, when people say to me, you know, I lost my faith, I, I, I don't mean to be crass, but sometimes I almost want to say, so? <laughs> you lost your faith. Does that mean God doesn't exist now? Because you decided he doesn't exist? Your psychological state doesn't change the fact of the, the facts of the world. It doesn't change the facts about God and Jesus or any of that. Your psychological state doesn't change a thing. So I realize I ought to start doubting my doubts because the evidence is quite good. Now, if I start doubting my doubts, then I'm back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? No, I doubt it. <laughs> How about this? This is called wimpism. You ought not judge. What's the problem with you ought not judge? Yeah, you just did. If somebody says you ought not judge, you ought to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Or you can have some fun. When somebody says you ought not judge, you ought to put your hands on your hips and say, then why are you judging me for not judging? Or why, why, why are you judging me when you say I ought not be judging? You're judging me right now, aren't you? Now, by the way, did Jesus say don't judge? Did he say, is that all he said, don't judge? No, what did he say? He said, judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's actually telling us to make a judgment. He's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's, uh, brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first before you go try and help your brother. In other words, this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem, fix it, then go see and help your brother. In fact, Jesus elsewhere in John 7, 24 says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. What judgments do they make? Well, there's no God. Christianity's wrong. These things are false. Those are all judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? Now, Jesus, I will say, did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. They were on the Sanhedrin. They ran Israel. And Jesus went after them. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who'd never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read either John chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 23. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? He's talking to these Pharisees. 
Yeah, he's talking to them. And he gets to the point where he says, your father is the devil. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? Your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not Christ-like. What? Jesus is calling people children of the devil. And in, in Matthew 23, when he's talking to these Pharisees, same Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. <laughs> Can't we all just get along, boys and girls? No! He was not Mr. Rogers. Can you say kindness, boys and girls? I mean, he was, he was kind most of the time, but he certainly didn't go around saying, this sermon brought to you by the letter E. No, Jesus was tough. Don't buy into this. I hate to say it's, it's a feminized Jesus, really. That's what it is. That's not Jesus of the Bible. Jesus stood strong, and he made judgments without being judgmental. What's being judgmental? Being judgmental is pre-judging somebody and always putting somebody in a bad light while you put yourself in a good light. We ought not be doing that. In fact, somebody put it this way. I don't know who it was, but it was brilliant. Somebody said evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. That's what we ought to be doing. By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. Do you ever notice that when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? Like if you say to your best friend, you know I really love you, you're such a wonderful person, you think your friend's going to go, who do you think you are? <laughs> are you judging me? You think you're worse than me? No, nobody's ever going to say that, right? People don't really have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. That's really the problem, okay? Now, I think we got a handle now on turning a claim on itself. So now let's look at a little bit more sophisticated claim that is also self-defeating, but it might not appear to be so on the surface. This man is Francis Crick. He looks a little creepy to me. Anyway, Francis Crick, as you know, co-discovered the DNA molecule. And he was actually uh, an atheist and a materialist. And he wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And in this book, he clearly stated what he meant by materialism. And this is what most atheists believe today. In fact, that's what Michael Shermer believes. Here's what Crick said in his book. The astonishing hypothesis is that you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. In other words, you are nothing but a molecular machine. You're a moist robot. This is a question I asked Shermer the other night. If this is true, you're just a moist robot. I asked him some implications of that. Now, this is very clear Description of atheistic materialism. What's the problem with it? Well, let me ask you this. Imagine if Crick had said this in his book. If he had said, the astonishing hypothesis is that my scientific conclusions that I write in this book are, in fact, no more than the vast behavior of nerve cells and their associated molecules. <laughs> what would we say? We'd say, hey, that's self-defeating. Why should we believe it then? 
That's the problem. In fact, let's put, it in, let's put it in the same format we had earlier. If Crick comes along and he says, my thoughts are determined completely by the non-rational laws of physics, can everyone see this is self-defeating? What you're going to say to him is then, okay, well then so is that thought. That thought is determined completely by the non-rational laws of physics, so why should we believe that thought or anything else you say? And this was my question to Shermer the other night, and he tried to say, well, it's emergent properties and all this. He didn't really have an answer because there is no answer. If we're just moist robots then why should we believe anything we think? In fact, if atheism were true, we shouldn't even be able to reason. Here are the atheists saying we're the beacons of reason, but if their worldview is true, we shouldn't be able to even reason. We're robots. We're not reasoning. We're reacting. In fact, uh, this guy, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, was an evolutionist who lived many years ago, and he believed this materialistic viewpoint, but even he understood that it really didn't work. In fact, here's what he said. He said, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason for supposing that my brain is to be composed of atoms. (laughs) You see, he can see the self-defeating nature of atheism. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who is a new atheist as well, he's a materialist, he believes consciousness is an illusion. One wonders if he was conscious when he wrote this. (laughs) By the way, how could you know that your consciousness is an illusion? Well, let me ask the question this way. How do you know that a dream is just a dream? What has to happen to you? You got to wake up, right? You got to get outside the dream to know, oh, I'm glad that was just a dream. The only way you could know something is in a dream or an illusion is to get outside of it. So how could Dennett know that consciousness is an illusion? He'd have to have some kind of super consciousness perspective. In effect, he'd have to be somebody like God to say that we are just having an illusion here. It's a self-defeating proposition as well. And if I had to sum it up in one sentence, this would be what I think atheists are doing. Atheists exempt themselves from their own theories. Like Crick says, everybody's a molecular machine, except me, I'm not a molecular machine. Dennett says, consciousness is an illusion, except my consciousness, my consciousness is not an illusion. I need my consciousness to write books that say consciousness is an illusion. You see the problem here? This is a self-defeating proposition. So the point I wanna make is that reason is not something that the atheists should be claiming because by their own worldview, reason wouldn't even be possible if we were just moist robots or molecular machines. Now I wanna jump down to this issue of science. Science, because atheists think that they uh, are the uh, possessors of science and that science is somehow disproven God. Now, we have an entire chapter in the book on this. I can only spend a few minutes on it. But if you're afraid of science, let me just say one thing. If you're a Christian and you're afraid of science, you shouldn't be afraid of science. Because science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. There would be no scientific conclusions unless human beings were doing science. I mean, think about this. Whenever you see somebody on the news who says, science says we need to do it. No, science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. And sometimes their philosophical presuppositions cause them to come to conclusions that appear to be against what God says when, in fact... it's just their philosophy. It's their atheistic philosophy that's causing them to come to some conclusions. 
because all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Does science do that? No, there would be no science if human beings didn't exist. Human beings are doing science. And so all science needs to be, or I should say, all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. We unpack that in the book at great length. I don't have time to go any further with it, but let me just point out that many scientists will say this. There is no truth in anything but science. What's the problem with the claim? Can anyone see the problem? Turn the claim on itself. This is the interactive portion of the program. What would you say to somebody who said this? Yeah, you would simply say, hey, is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that claim? No, that's a philosophical claim. In fact, there are so many aspects of reality that you can't, that science can't prove. In fact, you need them to do science. In fact, I got to show you this really quick clip. Um, let me set this up right because, hang on a second. Here you go. What, what can't science explain? In 1998, 20 years ago, I was at a debate. It was a debate between William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins. William Lane Craig is a Christian. He's probably debated more people than anybody else uh, for the Christian side in the past 30 years. Peter Atkins was a, um, a chemist at Oxford University. He was an atheist. And they were having a back and forth. And William Buckley, do you guys remember William Buckley? For those of you who are a little old, you might remember William Buckley. He was the moderator of this debate. And William Buckley was so eccentric, he could get away with anything at the debate. In fact, being a Catholic, he was completely on Craig's side. And he made no bones about it. He was not going to be neutral. When the debate started, he introduced the two debaters this way. He said, representing the Christian position is Dr. William Lane Craig. Representing the devil is Dr. <laughs> Peter Atkins. Anyway... Atkins, be, or Craig, I'm sorry, Buckley began arguing with Atkins himself during the debate. And then he's not getting anywhere with him, so he asked Craig to jump in. And at that point, Atkins asked Craig or says to Craig, everything can be explained by science. Do you agree, Dr. Craig? And then Craig gives an eloquent five-point refutation to what Atkins says. And I want to show it to you right now. It's only two minutes long. You're going to see Atkins in the beginning, and Craig is the one with the beard. You'll see Buckley in there, too. I want you to listen or watch for two things. In addition to what Atkins is saying and Craig is saying, I want you to look at uh, Atkins while Craig is speaking, because Atkins looks completely lost. He's just staring off into space. And then secondly, I want you to listen to what Buckley says at the very end, because it's priceless. Are you ready? Here we go. Portuguese but, subtitles. But no need for I mean, everything in the world can be understood without needing to invoke a God. You have to accept that that is one possible view to take about the world. Sure, that's possible. But, okay. but oh, do you deny that science cannot account for everything? Yes, I do deny that science So what can't it account for? Well, I, had you brought that up in the debate, I had a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we're all rational to accept. Let me, list, let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, metaphysical truths, like there are other minds other than my own, or that the external world is real, or that the past was not created five minutes ago with an appearance of age. 
are rational beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value uh, are not accessible by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the scientists in Western democracies. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful, like the good, cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with uh, unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points A and B. But that strictly cannot be proven. We simply have to assume that in order to hold to the theory. But you're missing the whole... Well, put your pipe in the smoke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. we are, none of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and yet they are accepted by all of us, and we're rational in doing so. Do you hear what Buckley said at the end? So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Now, in case you're keeping score at home, this is actually what Craig said. These things cannot be explained by science because science needs to presume them in order to progress. You can't prove logic and math by science. You need those in order to do science. Metaphysical truths, like there's a real world out there that your mind can access, you can't prove that by science. You need that in order to do science. Morality. In order to get good results, you have to be honest when you report your results. In a survey done about 10 years ago, about a third of scientists admitting to fudging data to get the results they wanted. Why? So, so much of science is put forth by business and universities and people looking for a particular result. There's pressure to get the right result. Also, aesthetic truths like beauty and science itself, science itself is built on a number of philosophical presuppositions that you can't prove by science, you have to assume in order to do science. In the book, Stealing from God, we have this drawing here that illustrates these. I don't have time to go through all of these, but if you look at the bottom here where it says philosophical presuppositions, all of these things you can't prove by science, you, you need them in order to do science. Morality, free will, logic, realism, uniformity, reason, orderly natural laws, the law of causality itself, which is central to science. When you're doing science, you're trying to discover what particular effect was, what was it caused by? What's the cause for this particular effect? In fact, let's just take a quick look at orderly natural laws. In fact, my thesis is, is that science actually needs God. Why? In order to do science, you need an orderly universe. For example, the laws of nature are goal-directed. Why is nature that way? What do I mean by goal-directed? Well, look at the planets. They go around the sun, right? Routinely, in, a, in, a, in a, a consistent fashion. They don't stop and start or do random motions. Why is that? Well, come on, Frank, it's easy. There's a law like gravity. Why is there a law like gravity? And why is it so precise? And why does it do the same thing over and over again? Because there's a mind behind it. In fact, there's a mind behind, it seems, all natural laws for living and unliving things. Think about an a, a oak tree. Where, do, where does an oak tree come from? Well, it comes from an acorn. Well, why does an acorn, if it's properly nourished, always become an oak tree? It never becomes a birch tree or an elm tree or a seahorse. Why does, it, why does an acorn always become an oak tree? 
Well, because it's programmed. There's DNA in there that programs it. Well, who programmed it? And is an acorn conscious? I mean, is an acorn sitting in the ground going, all right, what do I need to do to become an oak tree? No. Yet if it's properly nourished, it always goes in the direction of becoming an oak tree. Why is that? It doesn't have a mind of its own. And if it doesn't have a mind of its own, yet it always goes in the same direction, there must be a mind outside of it directing it toward that end. Aristotle recognized this 2,400 years ago. That's why he said there has to be an unmoved mover. It doesn't matter if the universe had a beginning, according to Aristotle. Even if it's eternal, which it isn't, but even if it's eternal, everything's going in a direction consistently, which means there must be a mind directing it. Thomas Aquinas picked this up in the 1200s AD and said, this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God. Everything's going in a direction. There's design, there's teleology, there's intentionality out there. Science presupposes that. If the world wasn't orderly like this, you couldn't do science. In fact, you're goal-directed. This is you in the womb at 11 weeks. Question, is this animal, mineral, vegetable, or human? Human. In fact, let's go back even further than 11 weeks. Let's go back all the way to when your mother and father got together to conceive you. Have you guys had this talk before? I see some young people in here, so I'll try and be discreet. I also see some older people in here, so I'll try and be discreet as well, just in case you've forgotten how this works, okay? <laughs> but when your mother and father got together to conceive you, first of all, your mother unconsciously perfumed her egg to attract your father, and then your father sent the entire population of the United States. <laughs> 300 million soldiers toward your mother's egg and then there was a race and you won don't let anyone ever tell you you're not special you have blown away anything michael phelps has done i mean you beat 300 million others it's amazing now seeing some of you limping here earlier makes it hard for me to believe you were the fastest soldier in the gene pool but you were now, your soldier was 20 to 30 times smaller than a grain of salt, yet it contained half of the 3.2 billion letter genetic code genome that makes you you. And your mother's egg was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence, and it contained the other half of the 3.2 billion letter genome that makes you you. And when your egg and your soldier came together, a new 100% genetic human being was created. You know, you have not received any more genetic information from that point until right now. In fact, your genetic information, all it's done is duplicated itself. And in fact, from the very beginning, your cells began multiplying at a rate of 4,000 cells per second. Brain cells began multiplying at a rate of 100,000 cells per second, for most of you anyway. <laughs> Some cells became brain cells, others heart cells, others lung cells. How do they know how to do this? Nobody knows. Some cells went so far across you to become what they needed to become that it would be equivalent to you today walking across the United States alone. And that construction project continues to this day. You just made 4 million new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million new red blood cells. 
You just made another four million new red blood cells. Knock it off. How do you know how to do this? Are you thinking about this? You're going, hold on, Frank, time out. Got to make new red blood cells. No. This is just happening. Why? Because there's an external intellect directing all this. David knew this 3,000 years ago. That's why he said, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Paul said, Christ is before all things, and in, th in him all things hold together. God creates the universe and he sustains it. He's holding it together right now. He also said, in him we live and move and have our being. And the writer of Hebrews said, God is the radiance, or the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Notice this word right here. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, God just doesn't create the universe and then he leaves it. God creates the universe and he sustains it. In fact, God is to the universe what a band is to music. When the worship team was up here just a few minutes ago, they were creating and sustaining the music. Right? What happened to the music once they stopped playing? Well, the music's over. Same thing is true with God. God creates the universe and he creates you, and then he sustains the universe and he sustains you. The universe is designed and it's orderly. It's going in a direction. Without that, there'd be no way to do science. If the universe wasn't orderly, how could you do science? So you need God in order to do science. This man was an atheist, Sir Fred Hoyle. And um, after looking at arguments like this, I think he remained an atheist. But he admitted one thing. He said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and there are no blind forces, forces we're speaking about in nature. You need an orderly universe to do science. You need immaterial laws in order to reason. Science and reason don't point to atheism. Science and reason point to a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. So if you want to go further, there's books and DVDs out that door. Uh, and by the way, all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine, just so you know. <laughs> in fact, one of them is here. My oldest son is here with me. He's in the United States Air Force. His name is Zach. And um, he's out there somewhere. And uh, we're also now teaching, oh, by the way, if you want this presentation or a similar presentation to it, type this into your browser, crossexamine.org forward slash FF. That stands for fearless faith. If you send us an email, we're going to send you a PowerPoint presentation like this and some other resources for free. We're not going to give your email address to anybody else, but type that into your browser. We're also now teaching online courses. In fact, we've got one coming up September 4th. You can check that out right on our website as well. We're on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. In fact, we're so into YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, we've actually combined these three into one social media platform. We call it you Twitface. Okay? You may want to sign up for that. We're on radio Saturday mornings. We have a podcast, just like Isaac has a podcast. Ours is called Cross-Examined where we provide evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. We're on DirecTV on Wednesday night, channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it is on Roku, NRB TV. And if you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, there's this new technology sweeping Silicon Valley right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of this? 
We're, it's, the show is on that as well uh, at our website, crossexamine.org. And you can access all this by the free app. Or the free app, Cross Examined, two words in the App Store, Cross Examined. Now, you might say, well, Frank, if this is so obvious, why don't more atheists and more scientists believe? I think for this reason right here. That people don't want to believe. In fact, here's a question I want you to ask anybody who's not a Christian. And the band's going to come up now because we're almost done. Here's the question. If somebody ever says or seems like they're not really interested in Christianity, you should ask this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists in front of hundreds of people on a college campus stand at the microphone. I ask them that question. You know what they say? No! Because most people are not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest. They don't want it to be true because they think God is going to get in their way. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. They want to do their own thing. So if you ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they hesitate or say no, the problem isn't here, the problem's here. They have a moral objection to Christianity. It's not evidence, it's a moral objection. Pascal said it well. He said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. A lot of people find it attractive to say there is no God because then they get to be God of their own lives. I actually think Jesus had it right. There is truth, and the truth will set you free, but you have to accept the truth. You don't have to just believe that it's true. You have to believe in what Jesus said and did. Father, we thank you. You've given us evidence that you came and you saved us from our sins and the entire universe that you created, including ourselves, is sustained by you. Thank you for what you're doing here at South Valley Community Church. I pray you'd help us to be better ambassadors for you as we go out in Christ's name. Amen.